0: Essentially, you'll hear the stories you won't find on their professional bios, and of course, you'll learn a bit about their practice. Now, let's get to the episode. Today, I'm speaking with Byron McLean. Byron is a partner in Foley's Los Angeles office focused on white-collar defense and government investigations. In this conversation, Byron reflects on growing up in New Orleans, Louisiana. And he lays out the path that took him from New Orleans to Cambridge, where he attended Harvard for both college and law school. Byron also talks about the time he took off between the two, spending time as a strategic consultant at McKinsey, as well as attending school to write a couple of screenplays before deciding to go to law school. This conversation is particularly fun because Byron's a former prosecutor. So I get him to reflect on the six years he spent prosecuting crimes and also to talk about why it was that he decided to return to private practice at Foley. Byron talks about building his practice as a new attorney at a large law firm. He gives fantastic advice about public speaking, which you will soon hear Byron and I are kindred spirits and that we are complete nerds for public speaking. And I also get Byron to reflect on a new role he has at Foley, which is being the chair of the firm's racial justice and equity practice group. As you're going to soon hear Byron has a knack for speaking, he has a knack for making connections with people, and I really hope you enjoy our conversation. Byron McLean, welcome to the show. Let's jump right in and have you give your professional introduction.
1: Yes, so my name is Byron McLean. I am a partner at Foley & Lardner. I've been a partner there for the past two years, since November of 2018. I focus on doing white-collar defense work in our practice group, which is called the uh, Government Enforcement and Defense Investigations Group. And I'm a trial lawyer. I love being in trial.
0: We will get to all of that. And one of the reasons I do the professional intro is the point of the show is to trace the path you took to be able to now give that introduction. So let's set the specifics of your legal practice aside for now. Uh And let's start somewhat at the beginning. Where are you from? Where did you grow up?
1: So I was born and raised in New Orleans, Louisiana. And anyone who knows me well knows that New Orleans is a large part of who I am and who I identify with. I am a diehard New Orleans Saints fan. So I love football, love sports, but uh, grew up in the ninth ward of New Orleans and uh, try to get back there as often as I can. unfortunately, my family suffered from Hurricane Katrina, which happened uh, back in 2005. We got eight feet of water in our home. So my parents have moved up to Baton Rouge. But I, I love New Orleans. I love Louisiana and I uh, try to get back there as much as I can.
0: Now, I once again, I don't know if I realized you were from New Orleans, and also this is where you get that sort of Midwestern. So, to me, I'm like, oh, you're from New Orleans,
1: <laughs> yeah. And one thing that I, I hate is that I've lost my accent, you know. So, going to uh, you know, I, I went to, to college at, at Harvard in Boston, and unfortunately. I think traveling up to the the northeast. One of the things I did lose was my my southern accent, not being in New Orleans.
0: I love it though. You do. You, it is more of a New Orleans, whereas yeah. you know most people are like, oh, I'm going to New Orleans. <laughs> okay, maybe they don't say it like that. I'm over enunciating. <laughs> it's fun. Exactly. So my brother in law actually moved to New Orleans about maybe six seven years ago. Okay. So I've spent a little bit of time there, not a lot. Really learned to love it though, and so I want to ask you more. What was it like? Growing up, give me a little snapshot. What was you know what was little Byron McLean like?
1: It was great. I mean, I will tell you, it's there's such a family culture in New Orleans. Everybody knows everybody. You know, they talk. What is it like? You know, six or seven degrees of separation in New Orleans is more like two or three. You know, uh, the food, as you probably know, is amazing. Uh, this is king cake Mardi Gras time, so I will be ordering a king cake from New Orleans sometime soon within the next weeks to have uh, delivered out here in Los Angeles where I live now with my my wife and two daughters. But uh, I love gumbo. So for Thanksgiving I actually cooked gumbo for the family, which I don't do often. I probably should do more often than I do. But uh love gumbo, love po boys, shrimp po boys are my my specialty that I love eating and I fortunately actually here in Los Angeles we do have some spots where you can get New Orleans cuisine. So I love that. And as I mentioned, I mean it is a culture of Saints football. Like you can't live in New Orleans and not be a Saints football fan, which you know, unfortunately Causes me to to cry sometimes because it's things have have some had some tough losses, but it's a it's it's a great family atmosphere, friend friendly atmosphere, and uh, yeah, you know you got to come back now. You here?
0: It is, yeah. It's, yeah. I think it's it's really a special place, also because of the mix of all the cultures and the history there. And we we won't just make this a podcast about the history of New Orleans, but yeah. <laughs> no, I, I completely agree. Once I have visited a number of times, I was like, I completely understand. Of course, there's still have a lot to learn, but absolutely. Although I want to ask specifically about you. So say we found you when you were 10 or 12. You know, what what were you into? What was keeping you busy?
1: So I thought as a little kid, I thought I was going to be a major league baseball player. So I'm actually a diehard baseball fan. Uh, New Orleans doesn't have a baseball team, but I grew up uh, watching the Chicago Cubs on WGN. You either growing up in New Orleans, you're either going to be a Cubs fan or a Braves fan. The Braves came on TBS, the Cubs on WGN. And back when I first started watching baseball back in the eighties, the Cubs were losing like 90 games a season where the Braves were losing 100. So I thought I was picking the better team, right? And unfortunately, I suffered in the 90s because the Braves were like a great team and the Cubs were terrible. But uh, I played first base, thought I was going to be a a baseball player. I loved, you know, speech and debate. I always loved talking. So that's why, you know, kind of law is a natural fit. I will tell you, I did think when I was was younger, probably in high school, I actually thought I would go into politics. My ambition was to be the governor of Louisiana. I love that state. But uh, obviously, you know, Things have changed over time, and obviously I'm here in Los Angeles now. But, uh, but yeah, no, I was a very rambunctious kid. I was probably the kid that didn't always do the right thing and got disciplined quite often by my parents amongst my, uh, my siblings. I have an older brother, five years older, and a younger sister, six years younger. So I'm definitely a middle child. But people will tell you that I did not suffer from lack of attention because I made sure I got as much attention as possible. (laughs) So I was that kid.
0: You figured that out. Well, tell me more about the high school time and maybe politics. Was that in your decision making when you were deciding on college?
1: It was. So I went to a school called Ben Franklin High School in New Orleans. Uh, It's a magnet school down there and very, very known throughout the state for being um, an academic school. And one of the things I got involved in was the speech and debate club in 10th grade. I ran for vice, I guess it was the end of my ninth grade. I ran for vice president of the student council and I gave a speech to my fellow ninth graders. And it just so happened that the teacher of the speech and debate class was in that, you know, in that auditorium session. And she heard me, I just kind of gave it, you know, I didn't read any notes. I just kind of gave it, you know, spoke, spoke. And, um, you just gave a contemporaneous speech. (laughs) I did. I did. I mean, I prepared, you know, and I knew what I was going to say, but, um, I just spoke from the heart and she absolutely loved it and encouraged me to join the speech and debate team, to take her class. And from there, it just, you know, kind of dovetailed into run. I ran for youth governor of Louisiana through the YMCA. YMCA has a youth governor. That's fantastic. Ship program, did that. And, uh, and when I was looking at colleges, I wanted to go somewhere where I could pursue my interest in, you know, politics and government and public service. And I learned that Harvard was a type of school that was, didn't just want the most the smartest kids, but they wanted the future leaders in the United States. And so I applied there and was very blessed to get accepted. Um, I got in early, early uh, action. But unfortunately for me, you can talk more about this, but unfortunately, when I first got accepted, my you know my parents told me we couldn't afford to go. I didn't have the economic means to go there. I totally understood. you know. I come from a very middle-class, lower middle-class family. And uh, I'd gotten into a couple other schools where I'd gotten full scholarships. Um, so in fact, I was probably going to, I thought I was going to go into Tulane in New Orleans, but Harvard then gave me my financial aid package uh, in the spring. And it made it so that although I had to, you know, pay some money, it made it financially possible. Aid not possible for my, exactly. It was possible. Yeah. And so I guess, you know, one of the messages I would want to give to our listeners is anything is possible. You know, if you put your mind to it, if you put yourself in the right situation. One of the things I had to do was I had to sign up for I think it was called dorm dorm club or, or basically some sort of uh, a job where I had to clean the bathrooms, right? Like literally my job was to clean toilets in people's rooms so I could help pay for my education.
0: So, so that was your work study. Like that was what the work study would
1: be. That was my work study. Exactly. That was my work study job. Mm-hmm. And so I literally showed up to the school a week early along with you know a few other students. And our job was to get the school ready by cleaning all the bathrooms, cleaning the rooms so that you know, it would be ready for the students when they showed up. And that was my work study job.
0: I have a number of things to say, but one is you're taking me back to my own process, which I don't know. I applied to various places. For me, I grew up in, Mil- in the Milwaukee area, so it was like I'll probably go to Wisconsin. And you just apply, and I think my mom was like, "You should apply to Harvard." I I didn't, but I ended up going to American University in D.C., which is a private school, and it is it is not cheap. Private school, right? And similar story, and that like financial aid came, and suddenly it was like, "All right, this is." you know, decent enough scholarship to make this possible for us, which without this, it is not. And also just being really kind of not understanding, navigating that process. You know, my, my parents both went to college, but they were really kind of relying on me to figure it out. I don't, I don't know if that was your experience, but then also I was curious having that work study, you're getting there early. So in a way it's a little bit of time to acclimate, but also the dynamic is different.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. No,
0: I don't know how that like felt for you at the time or how you made made sense of it. Was it like that's fine, I'll do this because I get to be here or kind of what was your what were your feelings about it?
1: And I'll tell you that dynamic was different for me because again, being up in the northeast, I'd never been That's true. I never lived for any time period straight
0: like. out of the south <laughs> up to
1: Cambridge. Out of the south. I was a southerner, you know. Maybe I had traveled, I think in high school I maybe traveled to DC for a trip or something like that, but I didn't travel much as a kid. Uh, we took road trips, but definitely that had very rarely gotten on a plane. But coming up to Boston, I I realized what Southern hospitality was. And it's not to say anything negative about Boston. It was just, it was a different mentality, right? Like I was literally walking down the street saying hello to people and they were giving me strange looks like, why are you talking to me? Like, who are you? And I will tell you, quite frankly, after being up in Boston for a few months, I wanted to come home. I got homesick. I called my parents. I was like, I'm coming home. I got to get back down to New Orleans. And my parents said, you know what? Stick it out. You're going to be fine you know, we love you, we're here to support you, but you could do this. And so it helped. It was tough. That first, you know, semester up in Cambridge and Boston and the Northeast, it was tough. But
0: that acclimation, that transition. Yeah. I'm also laughing. You reminded me of something my brother-in-law said. So he moved from Michigan down to New Orleans with his now wife and he's become, he's he's taken on what I would call our more Southern attributes. I don't know what that means. I'm not going to uh-huh. define them. <laughs> but, but there's this level of, and I don't mean this negatively, but. A, Pace of life, hospitality. Absolutely. Like it's okay to take your time to say you don't need to Much be slower. go go go. You know you're going to take the time to have that discussion with the person, and it's just very it's different.
1: It's so interesting that you mentioned that too because you know while I was in college I did you know some summer internships and I remember doing an internship in New York and I felt as if everyone was just moving so quickly. I was like you know I had been used to. You know, yeah, I was one who you know I worked hard. I worked at a fast, you know, fast pace growing up, but that was that wasn't the norm in New Orleans, right? Like norm, like to your point, it was much more of a slower pace. People took their time to like enjoy the moment and you know get to know people. And I just felt as if like in New York and in Boston, everything was like go 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 go, go. and it was uh, it was definitely a challenge getting used to that that pace of life constantly, where everyone was in a kind of a rush to get something done.
0: Yeah, I could definitely see that. Yeah. So you, you do acclimate, or at least you didn't move home. Right. What's your major? What are you focusing on while you're in college?
1: So my major at Harvard was initially government, because again, I thought I wanted to you know, go into politics and that sort of thing. Um, I actually also got involved in an organization called the Institute of Politics at the John F. Kennedy School of Government. And I will probably say I spent more of my time uh, working with that organization, you know, during the school day, then sometimes I did I spent studying for class, which was probably um, not the best idea initially. But but I did that. I realized while I was at Harvard, I didn't want my entire experience to be consumed with government and politics. So I actually switched majors on uh, my freshman year to economics and Afro American studies. So I describe it as money and black people. You know how to get it, how to distribute it to my community, and so I majored in that. But still kept my interest in politics by being very involved in the Institute of Politics and actually became by my senior year became or the end of my junior year became the president of that organization and had uh, in that organization opened up so many opportunities to me. I remember one time I was in a meeting where I had to lead the meeting and former president uh, Carter was there. So it was a a, you know, it was a very great opportunity for me to interact with dignitaries on a level that a kid from the city of New Orleans in the ninth ward never would have done.
0: That's amazing. Element, I'm still laughing at your majors of money and Black people. That's funny. Yeah. That's alternative way to describe them.
1: <laughs> exactly.
0: But also, there's something to be said for getting the opportunity to go to some of these institutions and what you're exposed to, to be in the same room. Like you said, as you know, you're know, you leading a meeting and President Carter or former President Carter's also in the room. That's amazing. Not nearly the same, but I recall for some reason at American getting the opportunity to go to, I think it was a Clinton Foundation event. It was very last minute. I don't know how I ended up there, but it was at Georgetown. And within 24 hours, I find myself in a room with Bill Clinton. Wow. I want to say Don Cheadle was there. Like it was and like maybe Russell Simmons. It was something extremely uh-huh. random. But the only way that you're able to get those just kind of one of, and I'm not like shaking hands or talking to these individuals, but still just to be in the same room and hear them speak was because I had that opportunity to go you know, to just a new place. And not to say you can't get that anywhere, but it's funny because for you, you know, moving up to Boston, moving up to Cambridge, you're suddenly sort of in the epicenter of where those types of things can happen.
1: Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it was just, yeah, it was, I had to pinch myself sometimes, you know, because I never would have thought I would have had those types of opportunities that were presented to me by uh, being able to uh, attend Harvard University. So it was great.
0: Now I'm curious, I usually don't ask this, but what did you do in the summers during college? Did you go home or did you
1: stay? So a combination of both. So I would go home for a part of the summer, but uh, I think my first summer I actually worked for my, uh, my congressman from New Orleans in D.C., but that had kind of kept that New Orleans connection there for me. My second and third summers, I worked for an organization called S.E.O.
0: Yep. Familiar.
1: Yeah. Puts you It links you with investment banking and management consulting jobs. So given my economics you know, background, um, I pursued those internships and I was in New York for those internships. And uh, and was, you know, a great, a great opportunity and experience there. And then I'll say right after I graduated, because I wanted to get as close as I could back to the South, I actually moved to Atlanta uh, and worked for a company down there, a management consulting company, McKinsey and Company um, down in the South.
0: That is closing uh, some gaps for me because I was going to ask, I saw that you've just like looking on LinkedIn, that you took a few years off between college and law school. Specifically, what type of consulting was it?
1: So it was very, it was strategic consulting, you know, one of the, the, areas I I it, what was funny is I was in, in Atlanta doing like a lot of um strategic consulting for McKinsey, helping, you know, with you know, business development for various companies we were hired by. I will tell you because of the times, I think this was near one of the first recessions of the two thousands, um, a lot of our job became basically advising companies on who to let go and who not to let go. And that was actually very tough because that was not my expectation going into the job. And it was hard for me as, you know, a first year Grad from college, basically going to a company and advising on who you need to basically, you know, fire. And so when 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 that happened, I actually I was like, you know what, I wanted to pursue other opportunities. I had always been interested in writing, and so I kind of dropped everything and said, you know what, let me move out to Los Angeles and try this writing, you know, thing that I'm interested in.
0: Tell me more about that. So what is, what was the writing
1: thing? Yes, yeah, so I went to UCLA for their professional screenwriting school. I applied for that and got in. Um, and wrote two screenplays. One of them was called Jackson, which is basically about a minister from this, a uh, pastor from the South, who was working in the civil rights movement and kind of the trials and tribulations he dealt with. And uh, the other one, I'm blank on the name of the the other script that I wrote, but I, I absolutely loved it. I loved writing. I loved, you know, writing the scripts. I actually, uh, the next year, I actually wrote a novel as well. And uh, but what I realized about writing is, as much as I love to write. I also like to eat. <laughs> and writing was not paying the bills, right? And so it was during that time period, I was like, you know what, let me go back, figure out what I want to do uh, with my you know, career and my you know, my life. And I, as much as I love writing, I can write on the side. So I actually went back to consulting. I actually joined Booz Allen for a year and in their DC office or Virginia office, did that for a year. And during that time period, I applied to law school. Okay. Because one of the things I remembered, my mom had told me when I was young, she was like, Byron, you could convince a drowning man to have a drink of water, because so I was always you know, trying to convince my parents to you know do something or let me do something, right? And um, I guess, and, I, and I, I didn't appreciate the gravity of those words from my mom when I was young, but I was like, wow, I was like,, you know, this is something that maybe you know maybe I'm good at. And so I applied to law school. In my mind, I told myself as much as you know, the Northeast was a great experience. I was not going to go back to Harvard or up to the Northeast. I wanted to I actually loved LA, so I actually applied to Stanford. Uh, applied to a couple other schools. And I was like, you know, let me just apply to Harvard on a on a, on a whim, you know, just to keep the option open. Well, when I was visiting the schools, unfortunately, for- I got accepted to all of the schools that I applied to. But as I was visiting, I actually fell in love with Harvard Law School and particularly the Black Law Students Association. It's BALSA. It's one of the largest BALSAs in the, in the nation. And I really appreciated how supportive they were of each other.
0: The community. You
1: know, the community there. Absolutely. That was so important to me. And so as much as I told myself after undergrad that, you know, I wasn't going to go back up to the, the Northeast or, or to Harvard, I fell in love with it and actually ended up going back to law school.
0: That's exactly what you did. And I'm going to pause you for one moment, just because I am taking so much delight mm-hmm. in your story. And, you know, as listeners know, for a lot of the guests, like we, we have occasion to interact within the firm for a number of reasons, but that we wouldn't necessarily have. A reason for me to sit down and get your sort of life story like this. But to hear about going, you know, from management consulting to pausing it to screenwriting, writing a novel, going back to consulting, then to law school, I just think that is so fantastic because it just shows how multifaceted we all are. And I can already see the different threads coming together Uh that are super useful in your current practice. Maybe we'll take the time to spell it out towards the end of the show, but the writing as a, you know, trial lawyer or someone in, like, you write a lot different kind telling a story. Yeah. You're telling, you're a storyteller for sure. You know, the style of writing might be different. You know, the interest in, in government, the, you know, back to what your, your mom telling you that you could kind of convince anyone of anything, but I just beam as I hear these stories because I'm just like, yes, we all have so many different threads in us and we figure out a way to bring them together professionally you know, in this podcast as attorneys, but in a variety of ways. But anyway, I stopped you.
1: One thing I'll add, and one thing it, it really taught me is, you know, in many ways, I was, as a child, I was very scripted and I and I'm not no, no pun intended, but I was the p- type of person who, okay, I knew what I wanted to do. I did it. You know, I had a plan to getting it done. And sometimes you can't be so scripted, right? You just don't know what's, what the future is going to hold. And you have to be flexible and having the, the opportunity in between college and law school of these different careers it actually introduced me to, you know, what, you want to, you know, you want to have a plan, but you have to be flexible enough to veer off that plan sometimes, and that has definitely benefited me in my, you know, professional life now as well.
0: I am nodding profusely. Our uh, CEO Foley said nearly the exact same thing that you just said. You want to have a plan, but you have to be flexible, and I have a feeling a lot of people would say the same. But I do think for really driven type A. Uh, people, it can be very easy to chart that you pick that path, put your head down. And it's important to gut check it every once in a while, you may very well stay on that path. That doesn't mean you shouldn't take a step over there and, you know, write a couple novels or screenplays. or whatever. Uh (laughs) But okay, so you're at your law school. And for you, this is quite some time ago. But you do start at law school. What is the adjustment like to law school?
1: You know, for me, because I was familiar with, you know, now familiar with the Northeast at Harvard, right? So I had that familiarity. I think working in between gave me just a sense of what the real world was like. So the transition back to law school wasn't that big of an adjustment for me as it was maybe for someone going straight through. I I loved law school. I loved, you know, studying law, but I also loved the interaction with the people who were there. Like I was a very relationship type person and loved meeting new people and that sort of thing. And so it it was a great experience for me for my summers, I still wanted to get back to Los Angeles. I now, you know, from being in Los Angeles, actually I actually have a lot of extended family in the LA area. So if I knew if I wasn't going to be in New Orleans, I want to be in Los Angeles. So I spent my summers um, interning in uh, in Los Angeles. And so I still had that West Coast connection. But overall, I mean, my law school experience was just, I, I loved it.
0: Now, I'm assuming you knew that you wanted to do litigation. Is that right?
1: I did. I did. So I but again, because of, you know, the, the qualities of, of being able to, you know, tell a story, convince, you know, someone of, of what the you know the right path is. I thought litigation was a, a the perfect fit. And quite honestly, when I was uh, when I first interned for a law firm the summer of my after my one year, they put me in the litigation department. and I just really enjoyed it. I enjoyed the writing. You know, there's a lot of writing in litigation as well. Right. Um, it's a different type of writing, which I had to get used to but I enjoyed that aspect of it as well. So yeah, it was the litigation was the perfect fit.
0: Well, and I try to be very open with the listeners about my bias at least when it comes to legal profession as a former litigator I do I will have a tendency to look at litigators and be like yeah clearly you were going to be a litigator I knew that whereas when I'm talking to those in other practice groups you will see me see me ask them more about well well why you know why IP why transactional but for the litigators I'm like of course you did everybody wants to be a litigator <laughs> so hopefully the listeners can see through you know parse aside or put aside alexis's bias and then I know just by looking at your your background Byron you spent the first 5 years of your career at you know, another large law firm in the LA area that, that wasn't Foley. And then you spent six and a half years as a US attorney.
1: Yeah. Federal also
0: in the LA area. So I don't know. And I kind of want to talk about each segment of your career, if you don't mind. Absolutely. Yeah. But so, you know, you join a large, you join a law firm as a litigator. How was it for you adjusting to that life? And what did you do to
1: learn how to litigate? So I really loved the people at the other law firm that I worked at. Uh, obviously, as a junior associate, you know, it ended up being, you know, it's like a lot of your document review and, you know, a very entry level work, which is important to know and important to have that skill set. But for me during the you know, and, and I learned a lot during those first five years, but I was really, really seeking an opportunity to actually be in the courtroom. And unfortunately, at the you know, I didn't get a lot of that experience. I, I did some on pro bono matters that I worked on, but as the junior associate, I wasn't the one making the arguments in the courtroom. And I really wanted that. And so one of my mentors recommended to me that, hey, you know, you should apply uh, to the U.S. Attorney's Office. And so I actually uh, met with some folks, tried to figure out, you know, what they. I didn't even really know, quite honestly, what an AUSA was, right? Like. Or what a federal prosecutor did. I wasn't, you know, introduced to that. Definitely not in my childhood. Not even when I was in college, um, or you know, during my early business career. So I, part of it was learning what they did. And when, I, as I learned more and more, the fact that you know they were representing the government, they were, you know, the good guys, right? They were the ones who were making sure that justice was being done. It, it hit all the buckets that I was really, really passionate about. Plus, I got a chance to argue in court. And when I, when I saw that opportunity, I jumped at it. And I absolutely loved my experience as a federal prosecutor. You- well, and tell me more. So, for the
0: back to the students listening. So, what does a U.S. attorney do?
1: What What did you do? So, basically, you know, we are our one client is the United States, right? So, we're in charge of basically prosecuting people who um, commit offenses against the United you know, the United States government. Whether it uh, might be you know, gun charges, fraud charges, and fraud can include you know, tax related offenses. Uh, my focus later on in my career was in the healthcare area. And we can talk more about that and how that led to me having a career uh, at, at Foley. But basically, yeah, I mean, you're the one who's standing in front of the judge and saying, "I, Byron McLean, on behalf of the United States, um, am pursuing this case to, you know, either you know, prosecute this person on X, Y, Z offense because they did something that I, a, a allegedly wrong, right?" And what I really enjoyed about that job too was, and I think what made me good at that job was that not just the articulating opinions in court, but also listening. Um, a lot of times you would have the defense attorneys that would call you up and you know make their pitch as to why their client you know shouldn't be charged with something or should get a better plea. And although I didn't, oftentimes, didn't necessarily do what they wanted me to do, it was good to like, it, it, it opened my mind to like, okay, they're viewing these same set of facts completely different than I viewed them, right? When I got it. And maybe they had some information that I didn't have about their client. And so it really opened my eyes to not just being a good, uh, speaker, but also being a good listener, um, which I think is really, really important.
0: So my little tiny bit of exposure to this side of legal practice happened when I was in college. I was an investigative intern at the Public Defender Service. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, the other side. And because it's Washington, D.C., it is, you know, against the, the government, At that point, and what you said is exactly right. The different set of facts, the volume of being in court, which I'm actually curious if you could say a few more words about because, you know, I imagine there's some sort of assignment system for cases. There's some level to the cases you handle and you are given those and you are now tasked with moving them forward. Is that accurate? Is that how that works?
1: Yeah. So in fact, you might have, um, there's like a, you know, there's different levels. So there's like a docket of cases that might come in and, and there's someone who's assigned to magistrate court. You know every day amongst the kind of the junior federal prosecutors. And so you'd be in front of a magistrate judge, someone who would be making their first appearance, and you'd have to you know argue on behalf of the government during this, that first appearance. It might not be necessarily your case, but it's the you're handling the intake of cases, right? Then the other set is you actually have, have your own cases where you're working with agents to develop the facts and you know to to make sure the government's you know representing their interest in court. And so you might be in front of a specific district court judge. Ultimately, I'd say, you know, 95% of cases result in some sort of plea agreement, but you have those cases that go to trial. And I will tell you, there was a time period where I had, I think it was four trials in the span of five months. Each trial was at least two weeks long, and I absolutely loved it. Absolutely loved it. I was in heaven. Now, my wife will tell you I was in heaven because I had two very young twin girls at home. And like I, it was forcing me to be away from the home. and I didn't have to deal with them crying at night and that sort of thing.
0: Your wife may be a tiny bit resentful of that time, just a little tiny bit.
1: But but she was so supportive and was like, you know what? I know this is why you're at the U.S. train's Office. This is the experience you wanted. She was like, do you? I got it. You know, and it was just amazing, you know, being able to, you know, you know how I, I mentioned to you giving that speech in front of my ninth grade class it was similar to giving a speech in front of a jury, right? Like I very rarely use notes when I speak. I like to either talk from, I might have a PowerPoint and I'll talk from the PowerPoint, but I like to just talk to the jury. I think it's more authentic. And I just, it was, yeah, it was a very powerful time for me and a very successful time.
0: Well, and you've just said some said something that I think is also really important about for anybody who's working on public speaking, it can feel the same or actually it will feel physically the same regardless of the venue. And so for anybody who's looking to improve their public speaking, just getting the opportunity to speak. So for you to say me speaking, you know, and that thing in high school or college or whatever, it felt really similar to what I was you know, routinely doing jury trials. I just think is a really important observation. And also this is like the, f- the former litigator in me who did not get much court time at all. But also, I am someone who would prefer to have some loose notes and then modify to what I need in the moment. Whereas I have met a lot of people who will almost write verbatim, they will memorize and that also works too. But I'm someone who'd prefer not to worry about I said the wrong word. And now I'm, you know, off the page. But I just think that's so important about the the practice of public speaking and just you're like you get muscle memory for it.
1: So two points. So to piggyback off of what you just said, practice makes perfect. Like you you definitely, you know, putting yourself in that position to be able to do it, you'll, you'll get better and better over time. Right. So I know a lot of people might be scared of being in the courtroom and scared of public speaking. It just takes practice to do it. But the second is just because people like me and you speak off of, you know, minimal notes doesn't mean that we're not prepared. Like preparation is key. Right. And I will tell people my most important audience uh, wasn't the jury. It was You know, my wife and my mother-in-law beforehand, who I practice in front of giving the, you know, my opening statement or my closing argument, and they can say, hey, buyer, you know what, you need to dumb this down or you need to say this differently because it's not, you know, you need to say it in layman's terms, right? We're not the legalese that you're using. Those were my most important audiences. And it took that practice in order to perfect it so that when I was in the courtroom... It was natural.
0: Yeah, because if you practice it many times, I mean, it's literally making those kind of grooves in the brain between your neurons that you, there's a, a moment where I think depending on what you're doing, you almost sort of tap in. And yep. if someone asked you to say, to say recite what you just said, you're like, I can't, I don't know what exactly. I said.
1: You know what? You've read my mind. One of the things I was say, if I were to give like- it's flow. You're in a flow state. Yeah. If I were to give an opening statement or closing argument 10 different times, it would be different each time. I mean, the same substance would be there. But you have to go in the moment, right? You have to read the visual cues from, you know, the ju- you know the jury if you're in the courtroom. What's resonating? What's not? You know. So, absolutely, yeah, that definitely resonates.
0: Yeah, I didn't realize that. Apparently, speaking is a favorite topic of mine, and obviously for me, the life I have now, the context for me is a lot different. But I will now intentionally put myself in the position where I'm doing some sort of public speaking or speaking a bit off the cuff, because I just think it's such an important skill. Absolutely. And it's something that you can continue working on forever. But anyway, we will get back on track. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Sorry. I just think that's so important to talk about. Yeah. So what was that transition from government back to private practice? How did that happen?
1: You know, so it was, I had been at, as you mentioned, I had been at the U.S. Attorney's Office for about six and a half years. And for people who don't know, um, working uh, for the government uh, is definitely your salary is much lower than when you're working for a private firm. And as I mentioned, I had, uh, when I was working for the government, I actually had twin girls uh, that were born my first year when I started working there. And quite frankly, when they were born and I realized I was having twins, I was like, oh my God, what have I done? Like, I've taken a substantial pay cut.
0: You just left that large law firm salary. You're like, okay,
1: here we go. <laughs> yes, we now have two kids. We weren't expecting to have two kids, uh, maybe one, but definitely not two at the same time. But, you know, again, my wife was so supportive. She's like, listen, we can stick it out, we can do it. Well, as they got older and got to turn, you know, five and six years old, we d- were looking at, you know, elementary schools to send them to, and we wanted, you know, to send them to a, a private school here in LA, but there's no way I'd be able to f- afford it with my my salary at the U.S. Attorney's Office. And quite frankly, the learning curve, although it's very, very steep at the beginning, it had plateaued a little bit. Um, I had taken on, you know, the deputy, uh, some deputy positions in the office, um, some leadership positions. I was the healthcare fraud coordinator in the office in the fraud division, and so it was at that time, where I was like, you know what, let me transition back to a private firm experience, but I wanted to make sure I found the right fit, right? Like, I wanted to make sure that I was a firm that was very personable, very family-oriented, the things that you know were important to me growing up in New Orleans, but that could also leverage my expertise as you know a trial lawyer, as someone who had you know done a lot of healthcare fraud cases. And Foley was that perfect fit. As I met more and more people at Foley, um, I just grew more and more in love with the firm, just you know their personalities. And I will tell you, you know, one thing that was important to me was to join a firm as a partner, and Foley was willing to have me come in as a uh, as a, uh, a partner at the firm, an equity partner, and it has just been a, a great fit. So I've been very, very, very blessed.
0: And then, so how's it been building your practice at Foley over the yeah. past now? Yeah, just, it's over two years, um, and you already you already mentioned what you do, but, you know, remind us again of what your expertise is.
1: So I'm in the White Collar Defense Group, and I will tell you, I was... It was daunting at first because, again, my only client for the past six and a half years had been, you know, the the U.S. government, right? And you don't have to go out and pitch work to the U.S. government; the work comes to you. And so I was, you know, I knew it was going to be a challenge. But again, building on those the skill set of I'm a very social person; I love people; I love interacting with people, and Foley gave me the platform to be able to get to know people within the firm. So they helped me travel to our different offices throughout the United States. we have over 20 25 offices in the United States and I went and visited my colleagues in person they get to know what they do, what I do um, so that we could leverage each other's you know skill sets but also reaching out to my context that I developed since law school since you know quite quite frankly since my childhood you know I have friends in New Orleans who are now taking on bigger and uh, more prestigious roles and reaching out to them letting them know, hey I'm now at a law firm, this is what I do. I'm a, you know, I'm a defense attorney that focuses on you know, things going to trial, but also focuses on healthcare matters and False Claims Act work, and now specifically you know, you know PPP loan work, since that's a new area, and the, leveraging that skill set to reach out to, to clients. And I will tell you, it has been very successful. In fact, over the past year, obviously with the pandemic, I got concerned that maybe client development would take a hit, but actually this has been one of my most successful years bringing in uh, legal work. Hopefully it will continue to grow from here and fully has given me that platform.
0: It's funny. So for me, I've now been at the firm for a little over a year, and so and you've been at Foley a year longer than I have. Mm -hmm. And so for me coming in, and once again, it's not that I I don't want anyone to think I think anything negative about someone who joins laterally, but I do know it can just be very hard to get integrated into an organization when it's not a place that you've been in for years and years or started right away. And so you know, my impression joining the firm, I, I was surprised when I found out that you joined laterally. You know, at the time, only like maybe a year or so before, because you do appear to be you know, very integrated within the fabric of the firm, which like you said, I think is a testament to who Foley is, but also a testament to your relationship building skills. Back to what I said about these threads that you see throughout someone's career so we see why that you know that superpower is is valuable and how you're using it now in this current this current context and we have a little bit more time together but there's a couple additional things I have to make sure I get to one can you talk a bit about the healthcare aspect of your practice because at this point I've had a number of members of your group or the government enforcement defense investigations group but none with a healthcare type of expertise so I would love if you could elaborate a bit on that
1: sure so when I was at the a former prosecutor at the U.S. Attorney's Office, I had prosecuted, you know, a case involving like kickbacks by a pharmaceutical company. And one of the things you learn is that once you, you know, touch a particular area at the U.S. Attorney's Office, you become an expert in it, right? And so I, I that it was a particular case that actually went to trial. It was a very intense, you know, trial. Um, it was, I think it involved like nine different defendants. And I think one or two of them actually decided to go to trial at the end. But uh, I became an expert on kind of like, you know, the process of prosecuting kickbacks, kickback claims. And from there, you know, we started working, you know, op- opioid use had become kind of a, a big, big deal. So I, I, you know, learned more about that, that area. And the and the, uh, U.S. Attorney's Office said, hey, you know, we'd love for you to kind of be the coordinator of all of our different healthcare fraud cases that we're, we're dealing with. Um, so it was my job to kind of track the cases, make sure they were moving forward, uh, make sure that we had, you know, agents from our Health and Human Services OIG um, office working with AUSAs, to tackle some of the, you know, the biggest healthcare issues uh, that were at the forefront. And unfortunately, you know, where there's a lot of money from the uh, United States government, there's also going to be a lot of fraud, right? And so, you know, the healthcare uh, industry, I mean, they, you know, the government pays, you know, billions, if not trillions of dollars in, in healthcare reimbursements for different things. And unfortunately, a percentage of that is fraud related. And so that it's, it's a, constantly growing and active uh, industry to be in. So
0: yeah. So then joining private practice, you essentially are able to guide clients who are going through that.
1: I don't want to say process. But who are- so now I can help help clients who are, you know, dealing with, hey, we've, you know, the government is alleging that we did something improper. I can kind of help them navigate that process. Also too for our clients, what I can do is make sure that they don't get in that situation up front. So we can make sure that they're complying with all the rules that they're supposed to be complying with and doing everything appropriate as far as the government's concerned. And that's also well, not just a criminal aspect, but a civil aspect as well.
0: That makes a lot of sense because there are so many aspects to what a government enforcement and defense-related practice can be. That makes a ton of sense. All right. One other thing I have to ask about, and we haven't touched on at all, is the fact that you are the chair of Foley's Racial Justice and Equity Pro Bono Practice Group. It's a group that I think at this point, and we are now in late January of 2021, the firm has had for, is it about, are we at six months now or a little bit longer?
1: Yeah, started this summer, probably uh, in about um, June or July of this past summer.
0: Well, let me set the stage for it a little bit, which is it was one of the many things that the firm did in response to, you know, what I've been calling the racial justice movement, you know, that with the the murder of George Floyd and so many other things that have happened, launching this practice group was one of the things the firm did in in response. And I'll, I'll toss it to you to explain a little bit about, you know, what the group is and what kind of matters it focuses on.
1: Yeah. And I must say, I must give kudos to three of our African-American female senior counsel at the firm, um, Lauren Champagne tonight Rawa and Olivia Singleman because this was their brainchild. They were like, look, we're in a moment unlike any other, and we want to do something about it. And I was so proud of Foley to providing them for that platform to express their ideas and their viewpoints, and then to come up with, you know what, let's create this practice group. And so as a partner at the firm, you know, I'm chairing the practice group, but they are the lifeblood behind it and really brought it to fruition. And so really what the what the practice group does is gives people in all of our local offices an opportunity to work on pro bono matters that relate to racial justice and equity. So two of the national things we put into place is that people are like, you know what? We wanna do um, continue to do election protection work, right? We just had a recent uh, election in, uh, in November and we wanna make sure that people's rights aren't being violated. They're able to vote the way in which they're supposed to. So we encourage people to go out and volunteer at the polls. And we had over 80 professionals at Foley dedicate over 2,000 pro bono hours to making sure that people's rights were being, you know, weren't, were not being violated when they voted. Another thing we did was we have protest legal observer work. As you know, there have been a lot of protests um, in the United States over the racial injustices that have occurred. What Foley put into place was we're going to allow our attorneys to go out and observe these protests and document what's happening so that law enforcement is not violating the rights of those that are out there protesting and make sure that they have a vehicle to, you know, to make sure their rights are being um, satisfied. And so those are the two things we've done nationally. But I'll say really, a lot of the groundbreaking work that Holy has done in this area has been from the bottom up. All of our offices, you know, we have, you know, some, a new partnership with an organization called Black Connect out of our new office, where we're advising uh, Black companies on the things they need to do to get started, you know, as small businesses and to grow and to prosper. We have, you know, uh, out of our Miami office, um we we represent the Strong Girls Legislative History Project, which is another you know thing that we're doing there. And we're representing a, a, an individual by the name of Jimmy Galligan uh, out of our DC office who was, you know, discriminated against when he was in high school. Um a racial slur had been kind of sent to him and he put it up on Facebook and now the person who made the racial slur is now you know trying to sue him. So we're defending him in that lawsuit. So just a lot of different things we're doing in all of our offices. And it's because of the hard work of the many associates and lawyers and professionals at Foley from the ground up that really makes this such a great practice group. And I'm so proud to, to be the leader of it.
0: Well, in the last I heard, the group has, I think, over 200 members. And this is work that, you know, I I think and I like to think fully would be doing anyway, but giving it that formalized structure so that there's more resources and ability to work across offices and to work with outside organizations, like you said, on issues that impact racial justice and equity. And also, thank you so much for for mentioning Olivia, us tonight, and Lauren. They have also all been on the podcast. Awesome. So... For anyone who's listening and would like to hear, um, and let me repeat their names again, the stories of Olivia Singelman, Sinai Rahwa, or Lauren Champagne, you can find them just by scrolling back in the queue. So please, please do that. But no, I, I actually really do. It's one of those moments where it's like, you know, I take my hat off, hat tip to the work that, you know, the firm has been doing that you've been doing. And also, you know, and they're all considered vice chairs of the group as well, because it's been tremendous and some a sight to behold. I was able to join one of the recent calls and I was just so impressed by the work that was being done. Well, and I'm going to switch gears once more to hit on one thing that I believe you are doing within your own community. And I'm going to apologize because I think I'm going to get the role incorrect, but I also know that you were, I'm not sure if it was an appointment or, but you have a role within, is it the local, the police commission or an oversight sort of commission in L- in L.A.?
1: Right, so I am a member of the uh, Los Angeles Police Commission's advisory committee, and the task of the advisory committee uh, was to come up with recommendations to the police commission where you know changes can be made um, at the LAPD to make sure that again racial justice and equity is being you know pursued. So those those final um, recommendations have not been made public yet. They'll be made public probably within the next uh, few months by the police commission itself, based on the work in part, uh, that the advisory committee has done. So I was very honored and privileged um, to be asked by the police commissioner to be a part of that advisory committee.
0: Yeah, that's absolutely wonderful. And really just a testament to all of the work you're doing, both in Foley and in your community. And I know you've had a very busy past, I think 12 months or so were, were, uh, were my impressions because of all of this. Well, and as we wind down, two final questions. One, Is there anything else that we haven't touched on that you'd like to raise? And then after that is, what? so what is your advice to somebody who is thinking of navigating a legal career or in the midst of one?
1: Yeah, the advice that I would give to someone is be open to new opportunities. Don't close the door on yourself to any opportunity that might present itself. And something that you think um, might be a challenge is an opportunity for you. And I would say, you know, you can do it. Like You can do anything you put your mind to. And based on the mentorship relationships I've had, based on the people who have lifted me up in my past um, I've realized realized that and I'm a testament to someone who can who can achieve beyond their wildest dreams and I would just encourage everyone to, to do that as well. so and I'd love to be a resource so if anyone wants to you know reach out to me or contact me for my you know my uh, bios on the Foley website, I'm happy uh, to be as supportive as I can because so many people did it for me and I think we just have to give back uh, in that regard.
0: Well, you answered my final, final question. So listeners, do you hear that? You know, please reach out to Byron if there's any questions you have. And with that, Byron, I'll just say thank you so much for being on the show.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me and thank you for doing this.
0: Thank you for listening to The Path and the Practice. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and join us again next time. And if you did enjoy it, please share it, subscribe, and leave us a review as your feedback on the podcast is important to us. Also, please note that this podcast may be considered attorney advertising and is made available by Foley & Lardner LLP for informational purposes only. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship. Any opinions expressed herein do not necessarily reflect the views of Foley & Lardner, LLP, its partners, or its clients. Additionally, this podcast is not meant to convey the firm's legal position on behalf of any client, nor is it intended to convey specific legal advice.